Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with my very favorite conversational partner on all things advanced, and this is Peter Diamandis. And Peter, this is a presentation that I personally saw, I think going back close to two years, might have been a little longer, up in Mountain View at Singularity University, and it's called Driving Innovation, and you've identified eight things that entrepreneurs can bring into their organization, almost like generators, as automatic generators of innovative ideas. I think this is very exciting because it doesn't depend upon having a large organization. As a matter of fact, it favors, at least as far as the innovation goes, it actually favors very small groups. So can you just get us started with this? Because I love this idea. I'm passionate about innovation. Uh And as an entrepreneurial business owner, I'm all ears with this particular concept. So, yeah, it's really important. There's certain things that you can do as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, as a member of a team to try and break out of your normal thinking and become a more innovative organization. And one thing that people take for granted is that we live in an ideas economy. It used to be for most of history, for most of hominid human history over, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of years, we lived in a material economy. You know, I have a hunk of gold and you have a watch and I trade you my hunk of gold for your watch. And now you have a hunk of gold and I have your watch. And that is a one-for-one trade. It doesn't really build any additional value. But in the ideas economy, if you have an idea and I have an idea and now we trade ideas, now you've got two ideas and I've got two ideas. And that has the potential to build exponentially. So that's a really important concept to start with. Yeah, The notion that ideas can build and grow has been referred to have recombinatorial sex. I merge my idea with your idea and it becomes something brand new as an idea mm-hmm. is really important. And it's been the last 200 years that we've seen a skyrocketing in innovation because of the exchange of ideas. Mm-hmm. And you probably know, Dan, as well as I, what's driven this, Right. When we were previewing some of the research that you have here, Peter, I was thinking of an experience that I've had to show the difference between the old economy, the material economy, and the idea economy. So for the last 26 years, we've been crossing the border between Canada and the United States, and I go through customs and immigration every time going both ways, and the customs official on both sides always asks me, what are you bringing back? You know, they have a list. Two of the big ones are cigarettes and alcohol. But what I find really interesting is that they don't have the ability to detect the new ideas that I brought back across the border. You know, I mean, over a 25-year period, these ideas, just in terms of our company, easily equal to a half a billion dollars. So I'm always struck by the fact that they're very, very concerned about the very, very minor, very trivial material things that I might be bringing back, but they have no way of detecting, and thank God for it, and I hope they never do, the actual value and the worth of the actual ideas that I'm bringing, and then I'm getting enhanced, and as a result of interchanges in the strategic coach workshops with very innovative entrepreneurs. Totally right. I mean, value of ideas is far greater than the material resources. I'll tell you, one of the things that's driven innovation is this exchange of ideas, Mm -hmm. but the exchange of ideas as people get together. So, 
For most of human history, the populations of humanity were spread out over far and wide, over rural areas and the farmlands, and you might see another family once in a while, but people had their ideas very concentrated. But then over time, people started moving into cities. You know, the numbers I'm looking at from my previous research, just for reference, in 1950s, 7% of the population lived in cities. And that went up to today, where a little over like 38% of people live in cities. And by 2050, 70% of the world's population will live in cities. So we have this concentration of people as people get together and they live Mm -hmm. in closer and closer proximity. And they have the ability to exchange ideas. So it's this concentration of the conversation that's going on that causes an explosion of new ideas as we share ideas. And along with that, of course, has been the communication technology revolutions, arguably starting with the telegraph in the 1840s. All of a sudden, you can instantaneously communicate information, which is one of the raw materials for new ideas, across vast distances in a matter of seconds. And I think you can really date the real innovative period when you had this ability to communicate at a distance instantaneously. It's amazing. Historically, and I write about this in abundance, it was the first coffee shops in the 1700s that became the community, the gathering place. You would gather, you'd have coffee, you'd get buzzed on your Mm -hmm. coffee, and you'd exchange ideas there. Now, of course, as you say, it's the global internet that is the meeting place. And we've talked about this in previous Exponential Wisdom podcasts that we're going towards a world where all 8 billion people will be connected with a megabit per second. It's one giant community, and I can crowdsource my ideas. I can share my ideas on the web with a 1,000 people who will improve on those ideas and come back to me. And the rate of innovation is skyrocketing, and we're in the middle of this, and it's accelerating because of this the rate at which we can exchange ideas and image ideas in virtual reality and have AIs help improve our ideas, mm-hmm. an explosion is not enough of, a, of an intense word to use here. <laughs> I'm an inveterate web surfer, so minimum for me would be two hours a day that I would be on the web. People said, what are you looking for when you go on the web? And I say, I don't know until I find it. In other words, that I go into this two hours not looking for anything that I already know. I'm looking for things that I didn't know it before, and it's a new idea. Now, that attitude on my part I don't think is unique to me. I think that there's just a vast number and growing vaster number of human beings who just involve themselves in this worldwide communication system essentially to find things that they didn't know about before. So the question becomes, how do you use these ideas that we just talked about to increase innovation in your company? And I jotted down a few notions I want to share. If it's true that it's the interaction between people and the people, like you just said, running into new ideas, it's this mashup that's so important. So I'll just throw out a few notions here that I think are kind of first principles. The first is your office-based physical layout, having an Mm -hmm. open versus closed, where people are constantly running into each other. And I can like look over and see something on your desk that I didn't see before. And that sparks an idea. Before Steve Jobs passed away, 
He oversaw the design of Apple's new headquarters, which I overfly every time I fly from Santa Monica up to Moffett Field to go to Singular University. I look down at this giant ring under construction in Cupertino. And interestingly enough, he limited the number of bathrooms to, I think, like two bathrooms on polar opposite ends of the building. I want to just double check that number. but And the reason is he wanted people having a reason to run into each other. So people had to run into each other. So creating a physical layout in your office that causes people to mash up in new mechanisms. You know, Google uses this a lot, right? Very open office plan. Mm-hmm. Another concept is how do you create mashups at your events and unconference? And I'm thinking about exploring this at Abundance 360 this year, in fact, where you allow participants. Ever been to an unconference, Dan? Have you heard one of those before? Yes, I have. It's allowing creative chaos, I call it. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who haven't, imagine you have – we do this at Singular University all the time. Uh, you have a group of 100 participants, and you say, listen, we have 20 spots, five different rooms and four time slots each, and you have 10 minutes, and you can put up your name to give a 10-minute talk. And so all of a sudden, you have a random agenda that's been populated in these five rooms – and a person goes and says, oh, I like that one. So it's a conference comes together instantly where the people mm-hmm. in the room are the experts and they get to present for 10 minutes what they're passionate about. I think the other areas are allowing ideas to come from all parts of your organization. You know, we typically say, well, this is the chief technology officer and this is the person who works in the mailroom. But the person who works in the mailroom or at the reception desk may have a great idea. And so how do you create an organization that allows ideas to bubble up from everywhere, from across disciplines, mm-hmm. from across layers of the organization? I think it's really important to generate innovation. Yeah. Two things just from our standpoint at Coach, Peter, I am really not part of the team that actually designs our offices. But the one thing that I insisted in both our Chicago Center and our Toronto Center, that there be a big cafe right in the center of the work area. In Toronto, we got a 50-seat cafe. In Chicago, it's about a 20-seat cafe. And the purpose for this is that they have to go there for their lunch. There's refrigerators, there's stoves. So all through the day, and I actually have my office in the cafe. I don't actually have a separate office. On any given day, I'll interact with 30 of my staff, and there will be small meetings going on. So that's one. And the other thing is that with another strategic coach client, we pioneered a brand new, it's called an engagement multiplier, which is a quarterly survey of your entire client base where in an anonymous fashion, all of your team, in our case, it's about 110 people, they can make comments and suggestions about how the company could become more cooperative, more creative, just more engaging place to live. And there's literally hundreds of suggestions. And then we have a whole team that filters through them from the standpoint of doability at short notice without too much cost. So we've just noticed a huge jump over the last year in the creativity among the staff. And it's all coming from places, well, first of all, we don't know where it's coming from. But they're just ideas that are really great ideas, big things, small things. 
This is why cities, people often say, you know, why would you live in a city? Cities are just a place that generate idea interchanges and uh, spontaneous and unpredictable interchanges of ideas. And that's why I think everybody's heading for the city, you know, going from 38% to 70% in uh, a little bit more than a third of a century. This phenomenal change of human affairs historically. So I want to share a misconception around innovation as the next innovation driver. And people, you know, this concept of people talking about think out of the box, think out of the box. I write about this and I want to ask you to change how, what the phrase you use, which is don't think out of the box, think in a really small box. The concept here is when you force a team to, uh, and this is the whole idea behind the XPRIZE, but when you force a team to actually try and solve a problem with massive constraints, it really forces you to think innovatively. So if you say to your team, listen, we need to deliver this you know, software that's 10 times higher performance, if you give your team all the money and all the people and all the time they need to try and create this 10 times better performance, they're going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. It's human nature. But if you said to them, listen, you need to deliver 10 times higher performance, but you need to do it with one-tenth the budget, one-tenth the number of people, and one-tenth the time, this massive constraint, this trying to think in a smaller box, Mm -hmm. causes them to have an interesting reaction. Mm -hmm. Some portion of people in your organization will go, that's crazy, can't be done, and they'll write it off immediately, and they're out of the game. Another group of people will say, okay, There's no way we can possibly do that the old way of doing stuff. It just Mm -hmm. is impossible. We can't. And so we have to start with a clean sheet of paper. This drives them to think of completely different ways of approaching the problem. And this is effectively what, for example, Elon Musk did with Tesla. Tesla really created a car company with no legacy, no unions, no old factories, no old approaches. They started a company that was from the ground up brand new, and they created arguably the best car ever built, at least by my belief, the orders of magnitude Mm -hmm. better than any car. I just got my autopilot upgrade. So I actually, I drove to work eating my breakfast this morning as my autopilot drove me down the 90 freeway, just FYI. So the notion of creating hyper-constraint on your team to create new ways of thinking and new innovations is a really important mindset. So don't think out of the box, think in a really small box. What are your thoughts on that, Dan? Peter, can you give us an example of how that works? Because you have a variety of different organizations, but can you pick one where this becomes sort of a regular practice in one of your organizations? Because I think people would be interested to see what it looks like in actual practice. Sure. So at Planetary Resources, one of the things that was traditional was building $100 million spacecraft to go for deep space. And this is what JPL has always built. It's what everybody's always built. These are large spacecraft, and all of a sudden, if you have a large spacecraft because you have redundancies, the cost of a launch vehicle becomes very expensive. We're talking 50 to $100 million. And I said, we need to completely change the paradigm. So I said, literally, how do you build something in a really small box? In other words, how do you constrain the size of your spacecraft 
to be one hundredth the volume of a traditional spacecraft. So it's the size of a shoebox, so to speak, with the notion that microelectronics will get more and more and more capable. And instead of like having one spacecraft where it has to work, where as Chris Lewicki, my CEO there, says, if, if failure is not an option, success gets really expensive. Instead, no, let's build a dozen of these, assuming a number of them will fail. And just one has to work. So we changed the paradigm completely of making these spacecraft, making lots of them, making them super cheap, assuming some significant rate of failure, and just having a multitude of them, where we realize that if you pick a very small physical footprint, you'll be able to put more and more capability into that every year. So that's one example of completely upside down the paradigm of spacecraft. The XPRIZE does this all the time. The XPRIZE basically puts out there a challenge of build a device that can diagnose you better than 10 board certified doctors. And it constrains the problem because it says the competition is going to run for only three years. The purse is only going to be $10 million. So you better not be spending more than that. And you're going to have lots of competition. So it forces you to do things fast and cheap. And most of the teams will fail. But if one succeeds, you've got a breakthrough. And the truth of the matter is that none of the teams actually fail in terms of the impact of their thinking. No, absolutely right. You've got lots of different successes. They may not win the overall prize, but they've all made innovations in some key mechanism that allows them to create a business around where they've driven innovation. You can see right off the bat from your first two, the exchange of ideas and then the severe constraints, why this doesn't work in bureaucracy. Because <laughs> sure. none of the incentives for being rewarded in a bureaucracy would think that these are great ideas, Peter. I agree. Let me, let me give a very practical approach to close this out in this subject, which came from a friend of mine, Michael Schrag at MIT. And I, I wrote about this in bold, and it's called the 555 plan. If I were to ask you, Dan, what most people fear in a company, if they're starting a new project, why do people fear failure? You know, what are the main reasons people feel failure? Well, because you get rewarded more looking at it from a standpoint, but they lose their status, basically. They, you yeah, know, they, right. they have a status, and if they fail, they lose their status, and their place gets taken by someone else. Yeah, so that you feel failure because of your reputation gets a ding. Yeah. You now can fall off. There's two other reasons most people feel fear of failure for trying something risky. I'm going to put you on the spot here. What are the reasons they, they feel failure? What are they going to lose out on besides their reputation well, generally, from their standpoint, their time is already filled up. You know, look, I have to do this and this and this. I'm just going to lose time that, again, will detract from my performance and my results, and I end up getting penalized for that. Yeah, so if you're two years into a project or five years into a project, and all of a sudden the project has a potential to fail, oh, my God, I've lost two years of my life. I've just lost five years of my life people say, I can't fail. I cannot fail. I, because if I did, that's like, you know, just decimates me. And the third, of course, I'm sure you can guess at this point is money, right? I've invested oh, yeah. millions of dollars. And so people don't want to fail because if they take on a big risky project that fails, they'll have lost reputation, they'll have lost mm -hmm. money, they'll have lost time, and that's way too much to pay. Yeah. So 
Michael came up with an idea that I love, which is imagine if you're trying to innovate new products for coach, or if you're trying to create new projects or products inside your company. He said, what if instead you take your organization, how many people do you have working at coach now? Uh, 110. 110, perfect size, right? So imagine you took 110 people and you broke them up into teams of five, mm-hmm. so like 20 teams. The reason the teams of five are important is in a team of five, there's no real CEO of a team of five, right? Mm-hmm. They can all share ideas. It's a pretty flat organization. There's no communication structure you need. Five is a good size. In those five, you can also get diversity of backgrounds. There's a good salesperson. There's a good engineer. There's a good process person. And then you said to them, listen, I'm going to give you five weeks and $5,000 to come up with a new product, a new idea. Here's the deal. It's the most innovative product and idea that's going to win. It's got to be something that's really, really, really exciting. And with that five weeks and that $5,000, I want you to come back with some data, some example that people actually want this. And so what happens is no one's going to get dinged for a crazy idea because you're looking for crazy ideas. So no one's going to lose reputation if they lose this thing because it's like one out of 20 teams. And no one's going to sweat over five weeks of effort because this is like sort of after work and so forth. And, you know, no one's going to get dinged for losing 5,000 bucks because we expect most of this is going to be lost. But you have these 20 experiments going on in your organization, right? You have five people times 20 teams, 20 experiments for 100 people. And they know that they have to try something really amazing in order to win this thing and something really different because doing the same old thing isn't going to succeed. And so it's a way of really creating rapid prototyping inside an organization. Mm-hmm. I love it. I've used it at XPRIZE many times. I love it too because the more innovation you can have distributed throughout an organization, the more innovative the organization is. I remember when I first got into the marketplace, it was as a copywriter with BBDO, which, you know, is one of the big global advertising giants. You know, it was a company of about 140 people, but the creative department had about 12 people in it. And the understanding was that the 12 creative people were responsible for all the innovation and creativity in the entire organization. And to a certain extent, the message was that everybody else is second class. Well, being good second class people, they didn't come up with any ideas. But everybody has an experience of what the company does. And it's not just the actual innovations that end up in commercials and advertisements. It's the entire essence of what you're doing in the marketplace as a company. And I think that that's what you're 5555 thing does is it it allows you to actually, first of all, access all the intelligence, all the experience, all the creativity of your entire company. And the other thing is that if you have 20 groups, there's going to be 100 ideas, and the vast majority of them that turn out to be valuable would not have been predicted beforehand. It also engages people with a feel valued and they have a chance to cross. And you also get a chance to see the talent in your organization rise that might not otherwise have had a chance to see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So really, really fun. So, you know, I think we're 
probably near wraps on this. I'd love to do one more on innovation principles or some other really exciting ideas. But for immediate takeaways here, think about the physical office space layout. Think about how you create a mashup between people. And then think about this 555 plan, team of five people given, it could be five days if you want, or five weeks, it could be $5,000, $500. You decide what the amount of time and money for the experiment you want to do to really come up with something that is going to be a brilliant idea. It really incentivize risk-taking. You can tell them if it's just a little incremental improvement over what we're already doing, it's not going to win. So you got to really try something crazy idea and actually get some evidence that your crazy idea has value. I think people will eat this up. They'll work nights, weekends. It'll occupy their shower time. They'll be thinking about what could our idea. Mm-hmm. It mashes up new teams of people in the organization. So... Anyway, as always, a fun conversation, my friend. Yeah, thank you, Peter. And since our audience is a great percentage of people who are listening in our entrepreneurial companies, the vast majority of them small to medium size, this plays in perfectly with their own innovation goals and objectives. So I think this is a great topic. Shall we continue this topic on our next podcast, too? Yes, I'd love it. Good. All right, pal. See you soon. Okay.